Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the APF podcast series. My name is Musun Layode. I am the executive director at African Philanthropy Forum. And today we have one of our members, African Visionary Fund, represented by the co-CEO, Ati Wokl. Welcome, Ati. Thank you so much for having me. Great. You know, Ati, we want to start with you because you have such an interesting profile. You are an advocate, a nonprofit leader, an author, and a former Miss Ethiopia. And when I met you, you were the founder and CEO of Seeds Africa. Can you tell us how you came to be all of this? I mean, it sounds so cool. And how your experiences have prepared you for African Visionary Fund. Thank you, Mosun. Um, you know, when I hear it like that, I sometimes I'm like that sounds like a lot of different things. Um, and sometimes it might sound a little bit strange on how they can all interconnect, but I think for me, they have in a very strange way. So I'm Ethiopian born and raised. I lived in Ethiopia until I, I was in my early 20s. And then I got into um, modeling and pageants and went to uh, become Miss Ethiopia a few years ago, not a few years ago, many years ago in 2005. I went to Miss Universe and around that time I was also modeling and traveling. So I lived in South Africa. I used to go to a lot of other African countries. So I was really exposed to the continent at a good age, I think, uh, which really opened my eyes. And um, I moved to the U.S. in the mid-2000s and lived there until about three years ago. And I now live back in Ethiopia. Um, I live in Addis Ababa. Um, and I think for me, this whole journey, while I was um, modeling, I really wanted to do some work in my community. And um, I started by, maybe the through line also to my work now, is that I started by asking around in my hometown um, I knew I wanted to work in education but how like to figure out the how I started you know working in my community and learning from parents what challenge they face and what would be supported for them um, so that's how Suits of Africa was born the nonprofit I started uh, back in 2008 um, and we really focused on learning from mothers what are the biggest challenges they face in raising their children and sending them to, to school and supporting them through their journey in uh, growing up. And we tried to create programs that solve those problems. Um, so SEEDS has two programs, education and economic development, where we're looking at a, a multi-generation approach and working with the mother as well as the, ch the child or children. Um, while I was doing that work, I started to see the challenges that I faced to raise money at a certain level um, and how that was related to race and racism. And uh, also being an immigrant living in the US and uh, raising money for something that was very far away. So that really led me to become interested in advocacy for black leaders and African leaders so that we can be looked at equally thought about equally um, seen as innovators and people who design incredible programs and get funding. Um, so that really, that interest really led me to start speaking and writing about the topic of 
racial inequity in philanthropy and the challenge in African leader space, particularly, which is how I got connected to the African Visionary Fund and um, joined as the co-CEO last year. So it's just kind of, uh, I think all of those experiences added for me is bringing learning um, about diversity at a very early age, understanding how Although we might have some different challenges, there are some very basic challenges that affect most of us on the continent and has really interested me in figuring out how to solve those problems. Wow, that's an extraordinary journey, uh, which has led you to an, an organization that I think is so unique that was set up in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic, I might add. And I, I know that ABF was set up to drive more funding to African visionaries to accelerate their impact. Speaking about your background, I think you started touching on why an organization like ABF. I would still like you to share more about what inspired the vision of ABF. And, you know, just tell us how this is going, especially with you and Katie serving as co-CEOs, which is a really unique model for most organizations. Yes. Thank you. So, yeah, I think, you know, as African visionaries currently, um, I think we are in a vicious cycle of not getting enough funding and then we don't grow the way we want to grow our, our work. And then we're pushed out of a lot of opportunities for funding because we don't get to a particular size. We're often asked to scale when we're not interested in scale or we're often asked to really drive a donor's agenda and not the agenda of the communities we serve. Um, so that's really what, at the core of why the African Visionary Fund was started. In addition, because the statistics also shows us that only 0.4% of all international humanitarian funding went to African NGOs in 2018, for example. So we're getting a very small percentage of the money that comes into Africa for Development Initiative. And if we look at U.S. funding, um, about 5% of U.S. grant dollars are directed to locally led organizations. So generally, African-led organizations that are working in their communities are not getting the funding, are getting a disproportionately small amount of the funding that goes into the continent. So what we are saying is that in the short term, we would like to see that change so that more money goes into the continent, into the hands of local leaders. And then in the long term, how do we change the biases and behaviors that lead to people making those choices in the first place so that there's a more equitable way of looking at who is doing work and who should get funding. So I think... That's really like the genesis of, you know, why we were started. And, and I think, you know, as we worked through the pandemic and I came and joined um, the following year in 2021 and, um, you know, Katie and I have been building the organization since then together. And, you know, what's really interesting for us and what we really appreciate in our work is that equity is at the heart of everything we do. And that is why we are structured as co-leaders and we believe that change within funding institutions starts at the executive and board leadership level. And we want to, you know, take that very seriously and make sure that it's embedded within our system. And our co-leadership structure is, I think, a really good example of how partnership and equitable decision-making can kind of create more opportunities for 
for working in this sector. Thank you very much, Ati, for sharing. And you made reference to very interesting statistics. And as you know, APF and Britspan launched a report last year um, that shows that only 9% of large gifts by African donors get to proximate organizations and 14% by international donors get to proximate organizations, which speak to the importance of redistributing power. And I know that ABF is known for this and also for prioritizing equity. In fact, you say that the how of your funding matters as much as the funding itself. So what does this mean and how has it played out in your grant making process? Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I think, you know, for us, we know that systemic injustice is personal as well as it's felt collectively. So we know that if you are an African leader and you're out there fundraising, it has a lot of effect, emotional and psychological on people and how the power imbalance problem is experienced on a personal level very regularly. And we know that this takes a huge toll on our partners um, and other fund organizations that we might look at for a possibility of partnership and may not partner with. So part of it for us is to make the grant-making process and due diligence as seamless and less time-consuming as possible. Um, so we start with a referral network right now that provides uh, organizations and uh, who they are to us. And we go through an extensive research online and through our referral partners to learn about the organization and see if we think they are, uh, uh, if we're a good fit with them and they're a good fit with us before we reach out to them. So by the time we reach out to an organization, they have probably a 50% chance of getting funding from us, a 5% or 10% chance. And when we reach out for additional information and a few interviews or conversations, uh, we always just ask for them to send us documentation they already have so they don't have to create something new for us. Um, so they can send us the last annual report, they have the last financial report, et cetera. So then we use that for our due diligence and we have a few calls that we take with them. So we try to minimize the number of hours our partners have to spend in applying or submitting information for funding. Um, and then once we select partners to work with for, you know, last year we had nine that came through and uh, the selection process also uses a grant making committee that we help um, through the process. So at every major stage, there's a committee that meets to look at the organizations, what we've learned about the organizations and where they are, et cetera, all the grant making criteria we have to make a decision on how we go from Last year, we had about 200 referrals and uh, we had to come to nine, which was very difficult. And through this, these past two years, we've already learned that um, there's no shortage of organizations to fund that are doing excellent work, that are locally led, that they just haven't been the focus for funding. Great. I certainly don't want to be in your shoes shortlisting from that many to a few organizations. Great job that you're doing. And for an organization that is just two years old, you have done remarkably well. Africa Visionary Fund has allocated two rounds of funds. The first $1 million to six organizations and the second $1.5 million to nine organizations. And these were unrestricted long-term funds. 
you and I know we're in this space and majority of funders give restricted and short-term funding. Why is AVF reversing this trend? And how would you say this approach is transforming the organizations that you are funding? Thank you for bringing that up. That is very, very uh, important to us and very important to me as well. So the reason we give unrestricted funding is because we believe that the people that are proximate to the issues they're solving have a much better understanding of how to allocate resources to solve those problems that they're solving. So we also believe that as we want to continue to shift power, we should look at money, not as a form of power, but as one of the resources needed to solve a particular problem because we're bringing funding to the table, but our partners are bringing knowledge, expertise, you know, contextual understanding and all the things that we don't have. So we think they should be the ones to make a decision on how to use the funds. And it's also because our funding ethos is that we're really investing in the organization and not the programs they're doing. So what we really look at is, are they set up in a way to be resilient? Are they continuing to grow? And for us, growth is not only in how many people they serve, but the depth of their uh, work as well. So we really think that uh, once we've done that due diligence, we're working with partners that have an exact ideas of how to spend the, the funding and they just don't get unrestricted funding. So that's the, one of the reasons. And what we see happen, you know, it's only now less than two years since we started funding. So there's, you know, a little bit more time we have to see to pick up on trends. But generally, the money is invested in organizational resilience in improving their team, increasing the team support they need because oftentimes restricted funding means they don't have enough money to hire um, support. So that's really what we see with the unrestricted uh, funding. And the reason we give multi-year grants is because we think funding has to be patient. Uh, the issues that our partners are trying to solve are systemic long-term issues that are not gonna be solved in a year or two. So we shouldn't be limiting the number of years that we could provide funding to one year or two years. Um, and we think three years is a good amount of time to plan for something to actually from beginning to end. We, again, you know, given we're still new, we will continue to learn about exactly how this impacts the organizations. But from what we know so far, it helps them plan long-term projects without you know, the, the stress about are they gonna be able to fund those projects? Um, so we think it's really critical to, for funding to really be more flexible to allow organizations to be nimble and make decisions um, as they see fit. Thank you, Ati. That's a very interesting approach. And I like a quote, or you might not have looked at it as a quote, but I'm seeing this as a quote. You said in working with those you're funding, the idea is to not look at money as a source of power, but one of the resources required to solve a problem. I think that's really important to note. And also the point you made about patient funding and you know, supporting systemic change in a way that we're addressing root causes that you know, would not go away in a year or two, but require long-term support. And that's what we really need on the continent to address some of the most pressing issues we've grappled with for years. So well done for um, taking this approach and for your willingness to learn as well, because you're obviously new and you're learning as you're going along. 
And this leads me to my next question, because you're quite strategic and relational in engaging grantees. And you already started talking about the difference in your grant application process. So I wanna ask you to talk about that again, but I think you can share a bit more about, you know, the uniqueness of your approach with dealing with grantees and how you're building relationships with them, especially when we're talking about redistributing power, um, power balance in terms of, you know, how donors relate to grantees. Um, thank you for that. Yes. So I think we believe that in, you know, we have to take the lead in bringing the voice of our partners into the conversations that we're in with other funders, whether that is direct conversations or, uh, you know, group conversations, what have you. Part of that is really, for example, currently we're working on our advocacy agenda, which is really driven from the interest of our partners on the ground and what advocacy areas would they like us to pick up? So based on what the majority of our partners are saying they need to design an advocacy strategy that will continue to bring up these issues into uh, wider, bigger conversations. That's kind of you know, one, of, uh, one good example. So basically for us, whenever we're looking at a particular solution, we start with asking our partners or organizations we didn't fund sometimes, that have gone through our process to learn what they think could make this better. You know, we are currently designing another, you know, open application system. So we started by surveying our partners around what kind of application system would, would they like to see? What would be more seamless for them? And what would be less time consuming? Um, and then really taking those so basically going to our partners or uh, other organizations around us to learn about how to solve a problem before we come up with a solution, because we think that the solutions are within the community and we want to really bring the voices of our partners into every solution that we're looking into. Um, so I think that's one of the ways that we are really practicing um, a different way of engaging with our, our partners on the ground. And the other is really making our requesting as little amount of their time as possible, I would say. For example, we don't dictate and say we have to be on the phone X number of times a year. We work, we're working with each partner to learn how frequently would you like to speak, what would be useful to you, and then we design a, a check-in based on that. So it's really being intentionally grantee-centric is really important to us. And we think that it's the best way to do the work um, you learn a lot. It just takes longer. You just have to have a little bit more patience because you're often having to learn from a larger group of people and then synthesize all of the learning and figure out what the commonalities are and then design a solution based on, uh, based on that. Thank you so much, Ati. You mentioned earlier that there is no shortage of good organizations or amazing organizations that are doing great work on the continent. So without a doubt, you're looking to support a lot more organizations. And you have a goal to raise $10 million by 2023 to achieve yeah. this. Would you say you're on track to hit this mark? And if so, what's next for you? Yes, we are. We're feeling very optimistic that we're on track. Uh, we've raised over $5 million already and probably will um, exceed six by the end of this year. And we're on track to reach our goal of 10 million 
support over 35 organizations in the next two years. And right now uh, we are funding organizations that are, you know, we have about 15 uh, on our portfolio and we'll be adding 20 in the next two rounds. And then we want to raise a bigger fund. Um, so we're currently in a conversation around how much would that be and what level of support would we provide? Meaning would we stay in the same level we are now or would we explore other levels? There are plenty of organizations. We knew this was true, but we also have over two years and then you know, this year we're gonna start our grant making in a couple of months. So we know that we have a strong pipeline of organizations we're looking at that um, are doing incredible work in the communities, but are not getting enough funding and we want to see as much funding go to them as possible. Great. My next question is interesting because I'm about to describe you as the new kid on the block. (laughs) For a new kid on the block, you've achieved so much in a short space of time. And so I wouldn't say it's inappropriate to ask you to (laughs) advise the APF community of funders regarding how to fund proximate organizations, because you've obviously done a lot of work and research and digging in this space, and it seems to be working for you. So what can we learn? Um, I think, I totally think we're the new kids on the block. So I completely, uh, it's totally fine for that name. I think, you know, um, we've been doing this work for a short period of time, but part of it is just, we have to start somewhere. Um, So I think funders sometimes get stuck in strategy and conversations and kind of figure out the perfect way to do it. But I think what we've learned is there's no perfect way of doing anything. So to start somewhere and continue, like what we do is every year we update our grammatical criteria based on surveys we do from partners. So every year we're trying to make it better, but if we waited for it to be where it is today, we wouldn't have had two rounds of grants out already. So it's just knowing that, you know, you might make mistakes on the way, but that is okay because we have uh, seen that the current funding system is not working. Uh, It's not providing funding for the right people. And that impact is not only on local leaders, but also on funders because they're not really getting the impact so to speak that they're looking for because they're not funding the right organizations so I think you know we just want to see um, that change and that's the most important thing um, at the end of the day for us in the short term that we would like to see. Thank you very much Ati this has been very interesting. Of course thank you so much Musun.